Fair warning, I'd recommend lowering your volume for a quick second right now. That, believe it or not, was audio recorded from a live Beatles concert in the summer of 66. The Fabulous Four had recently released their studio album Revolver and had taken the media by storm. The boys, John, Paul, George, and Ringo, had just finished touring the world. The group filled stadiums of thousands of screaming fans from Manila, Japan, New York, to Melbourne. The four were met with overwhelming crowds and commotions. Their interactions with fans were even at times physically dangerous. They themselves, though, weren't the biggest fans of these encounters. At the airport, I mean, did somebody, did they come up and start physically threatening you? Yeah, well, we, we got, yeah, go on, you say We that. got to the airport, and our road manager had a lot of trouble trying to get the equipment in because the escalators had been turned off and things. So we got there, and we got um, uh, put into the transit lounge. And then we got pushed around from one corner of the lounge to, to another, you know. You Around the same time of that summer concert, the Beatles were itching for a change. The Beatles had began transitioning away from their happy-go-lucky tunes that comprised albums like Please Please Me and Twist and Shout. And in December 1965, the Beatles released their next studio album, Rubber Soul. The record introduced more complex melodies and darker themes to their discography. They demonstrated the ability to conjure up masterfully crafted songs on the record's past, but Rubber Soul is often viewed as the band's transitional record. This is where many, including myself, argue their lyrics and messaging begin to meet their musicality. This can be found on tracks like Think For Yourself. Incorporation of the sitar from Harrison was introduced in the track Norwegian Wood as well. The sitar would continue to be an instrument featured throughout the Beatles' next few albums as well. The recording process for this album continued to be the band's preferred method moving forward. The album was recorded in one set, continuous time period without interruptions for press or tours. Through this process, the four were able to effectively collaborate and explore their ideas without breaks in thought. The sounds weren't nonsensical. The band's main writing duo, McCartney-Lennon, honed in on their already intrinsic skill sets in the studio. Both albums, though, lacked something that their next record did extremely explicitly. And on May 26, 1964, four boys from Liverpool took the world on a journey. So, without further ado, let me introduce to you Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band.
Beatles, along with the Beach Boys the preceding year, are recognized for cementing a notion all too common in today's modern music, the concept album. A concept album is defined as the following, an album in which its tracks hold a larger purpose or meaning collectively than they do individually. This is typically achieved through a central narrative or theme, which can be instrumental, compositional, or lyrical. Before we can take a look at why Sgt. Pepper as an album, and then more specifically the opening track, which is titled the same as the record, are used as model examples of concept albums, we must understand what led to the concept in the first place. As you were able to hear from the opening clip, Beatles concerts were loud to say the least. So loud, in fact, the band members complain about not being able to hear each other on stage. Despite having just released two back-to-back -back studio albums, the Beatles did not play songs from either Rubber Soul or Revolver. They claimed that, quote, they were tired of playing to an audience of screaming fans, unquote. The audio from the summer concert played earlier in this episode was, in fact, the Beatles' last stadium concert ever. Four members spent time together after the culmination of their last tour, but they also went off to pursue interest of their own. For example, John had taken interest in film and had begun working and meeting with people in the industry at the time. Their own ways in 1967. They could be, you know, on our own or together. We're always involved with each other, whatever we're doing. Could you ever see a time when, in fact, you weren't working together? I could see us working not together for a period, but we'd always get together for one reason or other. I mean, you, you need other people for ideas as well. But, you know, and we all get along fine. Will you, will you be... The members were growing more experimental in their recreational use of drugs as well. They all smoked weed prior to the recording of Sgt. Pepper, however marijuana, as well as LSD, were instrumental to the creation of the record. Here is some audio from Lennon speaking about his first time on acid. Get in the studio. Once I did accidentally, I thought it was taking some uppers. And I, I was not in a state of handling it, you know, but I took it and then I just noticed, I was so scared on the mic, you know. I said, what was it? You know, I said, I feel ill. I thought I felt ill, and and it was going. I thought it was going to crack, you know. And then I said, I must get some air. And they all took me upstairs on the roof, and George Martin was looking at me funny, you know. And then it dawned on me I must have taken acid. So the only John wasn't the only member taking LSD. Paul McCartney directly spoke about taking the drug to a reporter. In addition to his admission on record. Paul stood firm in his reasoning for broadcasting the information to the world. The Beatles were notorious for their interactions with media, and drugs like LSD were clearly not off the table for members. Have you taken LSD? About four times. And where did you get it from? Oh, you know, I mean, if I was to say where I got it from, you know, it's illegal and everything, it's silly to say that. Don't you believe that this was a, a matter which you should have kept private? Mm, but the thing is, you know, that I was asked a question by a newspaper and the decision was whether to tell a lie or to uh, tell him the truth, you know. George Harrison had also begun training with the Indian musician Ravi Shankar. His lessons with him would go on to greatly influence the messages as well as the instrumentation of the album. It's because we are spirits who are just encased in bodies People forget that and think they're just this body, but we're actually spirits in bodies. I felt like it was my duty almost uh, to bring it to the West and make them understand the greatness of our music. And that's how I started in 1956, 
ten years before I met George, and I was already performing all over Europe. But it was... And lastly, Ringo. Well, actually, Ringo didn't have a lot to say about any of this stuff. However, all the while, the country was under a cultural revolution. The mid to late 60s marked what has now been dubbed as the counterculture movement. Though fluid in its definition, the time stood for those who were proponents of free thought, expression, the protection of art, and all things peace and love. To keep it short and sweet, the Beatles ate all of that up and more and were key factors in the movement's popularity throughout the decade. This influenced the sound and the messages in their upcoming album. The Beatles were defenders of the movement and in some ways helped make the ideas from the era a little more digestible to the rest of the world. Because if the Beatles were doing it, it couldn't be too crazy or outlandish. I really wish the people that look with anger at, at the weirdos, at the happenings, at the psychedelic freakout, would instead of just looking with anger, just look with nothing and with no feeling, you know, be unbiased about it. Because they really don't realize that what these people are talking about is something that they really want themselves. It's something that everyone wants. You know, it's personal freedom to be able to talk and be able to say things. And it's dead straight. It's a real sort of basic pleasure for everyone. But it looks weird from the outside. All this information I've provided will help us look at the album's opening track in a more refined lens. In my opinion, the first song on the album prefaces the entire concept of the record. We are introduced into the world of Billy Shears, Marmalade Skies, and 4,000 Holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. Let us now break down the track. In all honesty, when listening to this album on shuffle, I sometimes skip this track. It doesn't really offer anything musically revolutionary, and nor does it show off any of the band members' skills. No crazy vocals, no crazy Harrison guitar tricks, and Ringo just kind of keeps the beat going. And all in all, at first glance, this track doesn't give a whole lot of wow. But in regards to concepts, and this concept album in particular, this track is essentially the thesis. Let's start with what we hear before any instruments or vocals. We hear what I at first thought was city street noise, but is actually a sneak peek to what is to come later in the album. What we just heard was a string band in a later track, A Day in the Life, tuning. The band was recorded by George Martin, and it was his decision to add the clip to the very beginning of the album. This forecasts a lot of decisions that were made for this piece. Several small additions here and there that were primarily for artistic and thematic reasons, as opposed to a catchy hook. In these 10 seconds, George Martin is letting us know that this isn't like any Beatles album the world has heard yet. After the introduction, we hear McCartney on vocals backed by very simple drums and guitar and the occasional brass horn spur throughout the track. In the vocal sheet music, McCartney sings, and I put this in quotes, a total of four technical times. He puts on an almost announcer voice and introduces us to our protagonist, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The Beatles, as we know them, are nowhere to be found in this song nor in the rest of this album.
Beatles have taken on a new persona in this album. This is told to listeners pretty explicitly. Following the anonymous announcer's introduction, we hear two voices, McCartney and Lennon singing against the G major song in an almost melancholy minor, burnout way. I can only infer that the Beatles were poking fun at their lifestyles when they were on tour and speaking openly about the routine and monotony of the show-to-show lifestyle. We will look into the lyrics in a second, but I believe a lot is expressed in the singers' voices in the following lines. They sound drain, almost sleepy, and this is emphasized by the consistent drum beats on every single downbeat in the song. taken on an alter ego that is said to be the brainchild of McCartney after a safari trip from Kenya, the band is using their own experiences to craft the record. McCartney sings, they've been going in and out of style, but they're guaranteed to raise this mile. I would like to think that the piece on going in and out of style may be referring to, to the recent turmoil the group has had about comments made on their status and Jesus Christ himself. John Lennon has compared himself to Jesus, and this resulted in protests and anger from American fans. Well, I suppose the things I said are accurate, were out of context, you know. Well, and, would you put uh, them in context? Well, I can't. It was a long time ago, but I just didn't mean what everybody thinks I meant, you know. I'm not anti-Christ or anti-religion or anti-God, you know. Well, Mr. Lennon. Lennon and McCartney then sing, It's wonderful to be here. It's certainly a thrill in maybe the most unenthusiastic way they could without sounding bad. Like I said earlier, this could be a play on the fact that the Beatles are super over being the Beatles, but despite what they may feel, they are expected to remain positive about their situation and their rock star lifestyle. It's to be here. It's a the anonymous announcer comes back and this time introduces a specific name, Billy Shears. Now, Billy Shears doesn't exist in the real world, but many fans have concocted wild conspiracy theories as to who this person may be. Many believe Shears is McCartney's replacement because Paul is in fact dead and the announcer is welcoming him at that point to the band. And I'm not a huge fan of this theory. I simply think that Billy Shears, just the way that the name of this album is in fact an alias for the Beatles, is an alias for Ringo Starr as he is on the lead vocals for the subsequent song on the album with a little help from my friends. Billy Shears is not Paul McCartney, period. And last but not least, the track ends with what we started at the very beginning of this episode. Screams. The song ends in screams. And thank you for listening to my thoughts on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, the song.